0: About a year or so ago, my folks came down for a visit. They live up in Michigan, and uh, they do come down and visit. And uh, they brought along with them on this visit, um, this this bin, this box. And um, I hadn't asked them to bring me anything in particular. Every once in a while, there's something from home that I want them to bring. Um, but I hadn't asked on this trip, and so I, I asked them a little bit more about what, what this was all about. And they said, hey, we've been cleaning out the basement, and we found some of your stuff, and we thought you might want it. And I looked inside, and I realized, in fact, I did want it because in this box contained... All of my greatest treasures, all of my greatest mementos from all of my greatest achievements throughout school days and high school and even college. It was pretty fun to look through it. I, I found in this, uh, this bin my old varsity jacket from the Lincoln Rail Splitters. There's a mascot, if you've ever heard of one. Uh, Lincoln Rail Splitters. And I found that in there, and I thought, wow, this is really cool. I ran cross-country in high school and had a varsity jacket that I hardly ever wore, um, you know, whatever. But uh, I found that. I was like, neat. And, and in the box, there were also all of these, um, like, certificates and, and uh, test scores from standardized tests that were in here and, and different things I got. There were some literal trophies in there. This one was for um, citizenship. I got a citizenship award. Can you believe that? one point in my life, I was actually a good citizen. Um, and, uh, and then also, um, I don't know if you guys remember Gus Macker. Do you remember those basketball tournaments, three-on-three three tournaments? Played on a Gus Macker team, and we, we won a, a trophy there, and that was where my athletic prowess stopped, basically. Um, but my favorite thing that I found in this, this box full of goodies was, was this. It is my valedictorian medal um, from high school. Yeah. Or as my as my loving wife calls this, my nerd bling, um, which is accurate. Um, now, now, the reason I love this is because this was, a, this was a goal that I set for myself back in kindergarten. My grandmother told me what a valedictorian was when I was in kindergarten, and I thought, I'm going to be that. And, uh, and so when I finally graduated high school and it actually worked out that I was a valedictorian, I was really thankful. It was a, it was a long-term ambition that I strove for and, and eventually achieved. Now, the, the funny thing about this, and... It's kind of disconcerting and very humbling, is that this is what happens with all of the trophies that you acquire in life from all of your greatest ambitions. They inevitably end up in a box in your parents' basement uh, that they bring to you marked "We Recycle." <laughs> no joke. Um, but it's funny because ambition doesn't go away after high school. you know, even after you achieve some of your dreams and you get your varsity letter or you... Uh, You know, maybe graduate valedictorian or graduate college with honors. Ambition follows us well beyond that, doesn't it? I mean, even after you meet the right person and and you marry the the right guy, or in my case, the right girl, and even after that, ambition continues. Even after you get a really impressive job. I'm still working on that. Uh, Vote for Dion, (laughs) June 2nd. Even after you get a great house or a great car, ambition keeps on. Even when you're exhausted from pursuing ambition on your own, what happens? So often in life, we take our ambitions and we place them on the shoulders of another person. And and some of you are sitting here today and and you've got a parent or a grandparent who has placed their ambitions on you. I know my daughter Ellie's sitting there in the front. I keep telling her that someday she's going to go to school at University of Michigan because I didn't get to. And so that's, that's my ambition that I've placed on her. And we do that sometimes. We are so ambitious. And for most of us, you know, ambition just doesn't easily go away no matter where we are in life. And my question today is, what are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with ambition? Because here's a confession for you. I'm an ambitious person. In, in the course of my life, I feel like I've heard these whispers of greatness in my ears from teachers and other leaders challenging me to live a, a big life, telling me not to settle for too little, uh, telling me that. I've been given much and therefore much is required of me and I should achieve much. I've heard these whispers always driving me for more and creating discontentment with where I am with the status quo, telling me that there's more to, to be achieved. And, and the puzzling part of this for me is that I'm never really sure if that's the voice for, of God, if that's coming from God, or if that's coming from the devil. It's hard to tell sometimes with ambition, isn't it? because on one side we know that God wants us to be content and that contentment is a gift from God and that in all circumstances we should find contentment and be able to give thanks so does that mean that ambition wanting more wanting to achieve more even striving for greatness is, is that mean that that's evil does that what that means and then on the flip side we've all seen people in life who have been gifted, you know, they're they're smart, they're born into resources, and yet because they lacked ambition, we've watched them squander their lives, and we all know that there's something wrong about that, that that is unjust. I love what Salvador Dali, the Spanish surrealist said. He said, intelligence without ambition is a bird without wings. It's just kind of pointless. There's, there's no point to it. What's the point of being a bird without wings? What's the point of being intelligent or being gifted or being able and yet lacking ambition? So what does a person do with ambition? What do you, what do, you do with your dreams? What do you do with your drive to succeed and to achieve? What do you do with a desire for greatness even? If you also want to follow Christ, what does that look like? Today we're going to take a look at a, a tale of ambition that I believe will help us answer this question about ambition, about, about greatness, about what God thinks of all of it. Um, it's a tale of a true story from Jesus and um, his disciples in a conversation that we're going to see in just a minute. It comes from Mark chapter 10. So you can get your Bible ready. You can take a Bible out or you can, if you brought your own Bible, go to Mark 10. You can go to UVersion.com or the Bible app by Uversion on your smartphone where the words will be up here. But before we dive in, let me pray. Father, I ask that you'd now, as we open your word, that you would open up our minds to understand it, to to understand what to do with these desires we have for greatness and for more, and just just to understand what it is that you want us to do with that. God, I pray today that you would guide my words and guide the meditations of our hearts so that we might know what it is that you truly want for us and so that we might not settle for anything, anything, that we might only take hold of your best. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Mark chapter 10 is where we're going. Take a look. It says, Then James and John, these are two brothers, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, These guys are are two of Jesus' twelve disciples. So two of his closest twelve followers. They came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Don't you love this question? We want you to do for us whatever we ask, but we're not going to tell you what it is. Just just say yes, right? Right? Before we ask the question, just say yes. Jesus, sign us a big blank check, and we're going to fill in the amount later. You just sign it away. But Jesus is no dummy. He's not going to do this. He's not going to commit either way. Look what he says back to them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> like, I'm not going to commit to that. You've got to tell me what you want first, and then I'll tell you whether or not I'll do it. So what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, okay, we got it. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. And the truth is that many of us might not know what they're asking for either. What is, what is this all about, that we would sit at your right and at your left in your glory? I mean, if you could ask Jesus for anything, would this be what you would ask? Well, well, some of this is caught up in cultural stuff, and, and some of this is just, frankly, a misunderstanding that people like James and John and pretty much everyone living at the time had about Jesus. You, you see, people believe that Jesus was a man of ambition— and they were right. He was, but not how they expected. See, they believed that he was coming to be a great king. And they were right. He was coming to be a great king. But not like they expected. See, see, they believed that Jesus was coming to be a great king, like King David the greatest king in Israel's history, at a time when Israel's powerful and prominent. They believed that Jesus would, would set himself up in a palace. He would take a seat on a big golden throne, that he would rule with mercy and justice and goodness, and that he would restore Israel to prominence. He would throw out the Romans. He would make them a powerful you know, military force again, that they would be autonomous and free and blessed again. That's what they believed. In fact, that's what the whole Palm Sunday hubbub was about. The people waving the branches saying, Hosanna to the son of David. See, see they believed that Jesus was going to be a king like David and that he was going to be the, the, you know, the best king that ever existed in Israel's history. And again, they were right. He was going to be the greatest king in Israel's history. But not like they expected. So James and John, they come to Jesus with this picture of, of Jesus in mind. They, they see this as Jesus' ambition. This is his destiny. And so the logical thing for them is they're one of 12. And, 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 you know, they think pretty highly of themselves and they want to go places in life. So they, they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, when you, when you come into your glory, when you come into your kingdom— when you bring in this new world order that we know you're going to bring in, how about this? How about one of us gets to sit on the right, the other one gets to sit on the left? Uh, basically, you know, and when a king is sitting in court, he gathers all of his officials around him, and those who are the most important sit closest to him. Kind of you know, like that song, I want to be where you are. And, and so they get to be right next to him. And so they're saying, Jesus, can we be number one and number two in your kingdom? Can we be the second and third third most powerful guys in your new kingdom that we know that you are here to bring in? It's a bold request. It's founded on a misunderstanding, and yet it's still bold that they would ask for this. And I want you to see uh, what Jesus says. He says, again, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. He goes on, he says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They answer him. We can. See, it's interesting here that that these guys, they really have no idea what they're asking for. But before we we get into what Jesus is talking about with all this baptism and cup stuff, I want to point out something that that I hope is obvious to you, that Jesus doesn't immediately berate these guys for being ambitious. Right? I, I think that's what a lot of us would expect. We would expect that these guys come up and they say, Jesus, we want to be the greatest of all your followers. And we would expect that Jesus would say, what's the matter with you guys? If you're you're true Christians, if you're true followers of me, you, you don't want to be great. Greatness is for, that's worldly, that's sinful, you know, ambition's bad. You'd expect Jesus to say that, but he doesn't. Which shows us that God is not opposed to ambition. See, I think some of you need to hear this. That ambition is not a dirty word. It's not a sin with God. Now, there is something called selfish ambition that God speaks against in Scripture. That's a totally different matter, but but ambition is not bad. Ambition is what changes the world because people have ambitions. People are fed who'd go hungry and people who are clothed who would go naked and, and people are given medicine who would otherwise be sick. I mean, amazing things happen in the world because of ambition, not the selfish kind, but this kind. God is not opposed to that. Maybe, maybe that's enough for you today because you've always been tortured in your conscience about this idea of ambition. And before you walk away, though, there's more. See, God is not also opposed to the pursuit of greatness. I mean, God is not perso- opposed to you pursuing a great life for yourself. God actually wants you to pursue greatness. He's upset when we settle for anything less than greatness. The problem lies in how we define this word. And see, that's where James and John and Jesus are kind of coming at this differently. They've got different pictures in their mind, right, of what greatness looks like. And that creates problems. It's a definition problem for them. And so Jesus is going to try to help these guys figure it out. But but what he's going to do first is he's going to help them understand something about ambition. That although ambition isn't forbidden by God, ambition always has a price. There are lots of us who have ambitious dreams or ideas in our mind about how we'd like our life to look or ambitious goals, and yet we're not willing to pay the price for those things, and so those things will never become reality, right? I mean, you can't be a great athlete without lots of practice. You can't be a brilliant mind without doing lots of homework and lots of study. They're just things that you have to do in order to achieve an ambition. And here Jesus begins to describe what will be necessary if these guys really want to become great, and it's not what they expect. See, that's where all this talk about, can you be uh, baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Can you drink from the cup I will drink from? That's where all of that comes from. What Jesus is talking about is what is required for true greatness. And, And he begins describing what he's about to endure what we're going to journey through this next week through the, through the Holy Week experience. Again, if, if, uh, if you're not planning on coming, you need to plan on coming Thursday night, Friday night, Friday noon. It's, it's kind of a dramatic thing. It's a worship service, but it's dramatic. And it, and it tells us the price that Jesus was willing to pay for his ambition, for his desire to be great. We're going to see that it cost him greatly. And, and if you just kind of come here on Palm Sunday and you wave your palm branches and, and then you come back for Easter and you hear he has risen, yay, isn't this great? You're missing an important part of the story, the most important part of the story. You're missing the price that Jesus was willing to pay for his ambition. See, see payment is required for any ambition we have. And, and, and he turns to James and John and he says, if you guys really wanted to be great, like I'm going to be great, It's going to cost you. The price is going to be so high, I don't think you're willing to pay for it. So are you willing to drink from the cup of suffering I'm about to drink from? Are you willing to be baptized with this baptism of blood that I'm going to experience? And these guys, these are kind of cultural metaphors for them. So they understand in part what Jesus is saying. At least they think they do. And, And they come back, you know, we can. We're willing to do hard things for this Jesus. We're willing to work hard and suffer a little bit in order to be great. But the truth is they they have no idea what Jesus is about to actually endure in order to become great because his idea of greatness is so different from theirs. Now I want to show you what Jesus says next. Jesus said to them, so you know, they're like, yeah, we're gung-ho, we'll do it. You know, just make us great. We'll do whatever you ask. Jesus said to them, you will in fact drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. You know, Jesus tells him, he says, guys, the truth is you're going to suffer. And it's not going to go well for you. But at the same time, it's not going to give you what you want. It's not going to take you to the place you want to go. And then he says something really weird, something really cryptic. He says, those places that sit at my right and left, those are prepared by, uh, by my father, those, those are given to other people. They're reserved. You can't have those places. And, and, and for years, I, I would read this and I' would just go, "Who is he talking about then? Who, who, who gets to sit there? Is this like for Moses and other people, like, like, who gets to sit there? And if you're puzzled by that, join the club. I'm puzzled by it too. But, but to understand what Jesus is talking about here, we have to ask a question. The question is, what is Jesus I'm sorry, when does Jesus come into his glory? See, this is a very important question because how we answer this question will shape how we view greatness and how we look at ambition in our lives. So I want you to think about it for a second. When is the moment that Jesus comes into his glory? If if they're asking to sit on the right and the left when he comes into his glory, when is that moment? How do we know who actually got to sit there? Because that'll tell us something about greatness. Greatness. I mean, is it, is it the moment when Jesus is raised again on Easter? Certainly a glorious moment. Is it the moment where he ascends back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God? Now, you know what that means, to sit at the right hand of God in the place of power next to the throne of God. Was that his moment of glory? Certainly that was a moment of glory. Is it, is it the moment in time, in the future, when he comes again, we say in the creed, he will come again in glory? The judge the living and the dead. Is, is that when he will come into his glory? The answer is yes to all of those things, but, but that's not actually what Jesus is talking about here. See, what Jesus is talking about, the moment that he will come into his glory, it, it's confusing because for us it doesn't look like glory. It's not when he ascends to a great throne and someone puts a crown on his head and puts a scepter into his hand. The moment Jesus is talking about, the moment that he will come into his glory is when he is lifted up in a place called Golgotha and he's put on a cross. And do you remember at that moment when Jesus is is glorified, the moment of his his greatest achievement, the moment when he is made truly great, when he is being crucified, do you remember who's at his right and his left? Do you remember? Two thieves. Two thieves. See, Jesus is saying, James and John, you don't know what you're asking for. The kind of glory that I'm pursuing, the kind of greatness I'm pursuing for myself looks nothing like what you think it does. And when I come into my glory at my most, you know, bright, shining moment, you guys are going to be hard to find. You're going to be scattered and fearful and hiding. You won't be anywhere around, let alone at my right and at my left. You see, Jesus is, is taking this idea of greatness that we think we all know and understand so well, and he's turning it on its head. I want to show you how the rest of the story goes. Uh, the others find out. The, the other ten, remember, there are 12 disciples. Two of them kind of do this survivor thing, they form like a coalition, and they're like, hey, let's go ask for the good spots next to Jesus. Jesus will be on your team, right? And, uh, and the other ten, they find out about this, and they're mad. So when they hear about this, they're indignant with James and John probably because they didn't think of it first. Jesus called them together and said, hey, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, rulers of the Greeks, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise heavy-handed authority over them. So think of people like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus. I mean, the people that they name cities after, the people they build statues in, in the form of. I mean, these, these are the, the models of their day for greatness, these Gentile rulers. Not too different from how we might perceive greatness today. And Jesus says, you know, your picture of greatness, these guys they're making statues of and naming cities after, That's not how I want you to live with a heavy hand. Not so with you, he says. Instead, now get this, this this is where he answers the question for all of us. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, I love this, because again, he doesn't say, no, 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 don't become great. That's that's, that's sinful, that's bad. He he doesn't dissuade them from becoming great. Instead, Instead, he says, hey, if you're ambitious, If there's a vision in your head of greatness, if that's what you want for yourself, if that's what you want for your life, if you want greatness, that's okay. But instead, if you want to become great, you must, uh, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first, well, the way to do that is to become the slave of all. And then he talks about himself here. For even the Son of Man, a title for himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served You know, he didn't come to sit on a throne like that one with attendants and servants all around him. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, so many of us assume that greatness, if it came to us, it would look like living in a huge house and having servants and and having resources and having a life where, where the whole world is at our fingertips, where the whole world is waiting on us. That's our vision of greatness. And here Jesus says, no, that's not true greatness. Notice he's not even saying, hey, that's sinful or wrong. He's saying, no, 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 you misunderstand what greatness is. That is not really greatness. That's not what you're seeking after. That, That won't satisfy the desire that you have in your heart, the ambition that you have in your heart. He says the true way to get there, the true way, the true path to greatness is what? It's to serve. It's amazing to me that the world has figured this out before Christianity has. Jim Collins, he's a business writer, does not profess to be a Christian. In his book, Good to great, you know, great, just an amazing business book, he says there's a difference between good leaders and great leaders, level five leaders, the greatest leaders. They embody a characteristic that the other leaders don't. That is humility or a desire to serve their people. Why is it that the world has figured that out before we can because even though we probably know deep down that this is what Jesus would say, this is not what we pursue when we want to be great. This is, this is not our idea of ambition. We, we are seeking after a 15 minutes of fame just like everyone else, right? I want to put the video up on YouTube that gets a million hits and I want to be the next blogger that, that just becomes famous and gets a book deal and gets to go around speaking to people on the speaking circuit or, or I want my kid to be the next rookie of the year sensation so I'll be taken care of in my retirement and, and uh, I want to get my own cooking show. I want to be America's next chef, right? I want to be America's next top model. I want to be the next bachelor or the next apprentice or I want to win on The Voice and become famous. Even though we know that history has a way of weeding those people out, I mean, they are flashes in the pan. They'll be great one moment and the next moment they're upstaged by someone else and they're forgotten. And yet, when we pursue greatness, when we have dreams of ambition, what do they look like? My guess is they look a lot more like James and John's dreams than Jesus' dream. And I think we forget that the reason we're here today, the reason we're still talking about this Jesus guy 2,000 years later isn't because he was a good teacher. It's not because he was a great miracle worker. I mean, he was. He was the greatest of both of those things. And yet the reason that we're here today talking about Jesus and worshiping Jesus and, and giving our money for the cause of Jesus is because Jesus didn't just speak like this, but he lived out these words. He was a man who had an ambition above everything else, and that ambition was he was going to give up his life as a ransom for many. And that's what he did. That's what we're going to explore this week. Again, don't miss it. As we watch as as Jesus, this this great man, became truly great, as he poured out his life for, for, for people who hated him, People who lied about him to get him accused and convicted of crimes he did not commit, he he, he laid down his life to serve them. People who doubted him and mocked him, he laid down his life to serve them. People who were sinful, people who had rejected true religion, he laid down his life in service to all. Even people who didn't exist yet, People like you and me sitting here today. Jesus had this desire to serve us in a way that we could not serve ourselves to bring us to life and salvation forever, to pay the ransom for our lives so that we could have freedom and wholeness forever. See, greatness is found in the cross, not in that throne. It's found found in this, not that. Jesus turned greatness on its head. And yet so many of us are still chasing after this, this other view of greatness that will not satisfy, that will not give us what we believe it will. See, I I think there are a couple of things that you should take away from this. The first is this, that everyone has an equal opportunity for greatness. Only greatness rightly defined though. Because if you're sitting here today and you still define greatness in the other way, this is not true. Because right? some people are born pretty enough to be great. Some people are born gifted enough to be great. Some people are born smart enough to be great. Some people are born rich enough to be great. And that's only a select few of, of, in this population or in this planet of you know, billions of people. The way the world defines it, there are only a few of us who have an opportunity for greatness. The rest of us are out of luck. But according to Jesus' definition of what true greatness is, not just his definition but the life that he lived, everyone has an equal opportunity for it. None of us are disqualified from it. Do you understand that? whoever you are sitting here today, you can be great if you define greatness the way Jesus did. And how did Jesus define it? As being the servant of all. If you want to be first, you got to be last. You got to give your life as a ransom for many. See, everyone has an equal opportunity for greatness. You need to know that. And the second thing that relates to that is that all types of service are not the same. So so if you're tracking along, if I want to be great, that means I have to serve, but I want to caution you that all types of service aren't equal. Yeah, it's true that any kind of service is better than no kind of service, and any kind of service is good, but but there's a specific kind of service that Jesus is talking about that is the pathway to greatness. And and I think we're not so accustomed to living out this kind of service, even a church like ours. You know, each week we leave, and I, I or Pastor Howard, we say, depart in peace and... You say, serve the Lord, and, and for us that must mean a lot of different things. I think for a lot of us it means, I'm going to go into my life and I'm going to serve my family. Or I'm going to go into my life and I'm going to serve my, my friends and the people who matter most to me. Or I'm going to go and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to serve my small group, or, or I'm going to take note of who's on the prayer list and I'm going to pray for them, and I might even take a meal to someone who's hurting. And I think for a lot of us that, that's our view of service, that we're going to serve the, uh, the people that we love, the people that are in our lives, and, and that's good. That's very good. It won't take you to greatness, though. See, if we want to be truly great, then our service needs to be the exact same kind that Jesus' was. It's a service to others, not just people you love, but, but people who you don't even know for the sake of God's mission in the world See, there are great humanitarians in the world, and they they do very, very good things. They may even do great things. And yet when this life is over, it's not enough to feed people. It's not enough to rescue people from slavery. Those are all God-pleasing things, but that's not enough. Do you see that? See, Jesus invites us into a kind of life that will not just serve people's body, but will also serve their souls, not just for a little while, but for all of eternity. See, the kind of service that really matters that makes us great is this willingness to lay down everything else in life to serve people with the gospel so that they might come to know the full and abundant life of Jesus. And there are all kinds of Christians living in the world who are gung-ho about serving other Christians. And there are all kinds of churches in the world that, that are places where people love and serve each other in the church very well. And those things are good, but I'll tell you, those are never Considered great in God's sight. Greatness in God's eyes is the exact same kind of, of Jesus. Giving yourself away so that others can live. Not just now, not just tomorrow, but forever. See, my burden, my frustration is that good churches like ours, we, we, good Christians like you, that we just aren't doing this. We're not, we're not living out this kind of greatness, this kind of service enough. I mean, when's the last time you actively served someone who you weren't related to or you didn't already know or care about? Some of you took a survey called Serve Boldly, and a couple hundred of you did, in fact. And there was a question on there that was about this. It said, you know, how often uh, am I serving the needs of my community in tangible ways, the the need of my community around me in tangible ways, specific ways? About 40% of us said we do that a little or not at all. How are we missing this? I mean, Jesus is so clear in the words that he spoke and he's so clear in the life that he lived. How are we missing this? Or for goodness sakes, when's the last time you invited someone to church? I know we talk it up as something that's really big and scary, but but how hard is it to say, will you go to church with me, right? And we've got these great experiences coming up this week where, where people can hear what God has done for them, this God of incredible love who's rescued them. And we get to hear about how hope has come into the world now and forever and there's life eternal for us. And how many of us are actually going to invite someone to be a part of that? Why? Because we're too scared? No, I, I think the reality is, that, that may be true, but, but I think the real reality is that, is that we're too busy. We're too caught up pursuing an agenda for greatness of our life that looks nothing like the agenda that Jesus had for his own life or for us. And so we're running our kids around trying to make them great people and we're, we're chasing after our career to try to become the greatest in our company and, and all of that is good. It's just not great. See, that's my frustration with, with my own life, with us as a church, with the church in America, that we keep on, in spite of what Jesus has done for us, in spite of what he's shown us, we keep pursuing some shadow of greatness rather than the real thing. So today I'm just laying it down and I'm challenging you to stop it and to join with me in pursuing a true greatness, redirecting your ambition in a way that, uh, that is truly rewarding and satisfying. Here's the challenge. Find a way to serve someone who doesn't know Jesus this week. All of you. I mean, if, if you have an ambition in your heart to be great, this is the way it begins. Find a way to serve someone who doesn't know Jesus this week. Maybe, maybe that's inviting someone along to, to the Holy Week experience to say, you just have to hear what God has done for you. It's, it's compelling. It's dramatic. I promise you, just come. Or, or maybe it's saying to someone in your life, hey, I want, I want to pray for you. What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? And you don't have to pray for them right there. That might freak them out. That's okay. Just say, I promise to pray for you this week. And then follow up with them and, and tell them that you did. Or maybe it's buying someone's coffee and it's saying, I'm buying your coffee today because Jesus loves you. And then don't preach a sermon at them. Don't freak them out. Just, just say that. Just let them know. But if, if they want to know more, then talk to them about it. See, before us, there is this chance to stop playing games, to stop settling with these, these illusions of greatness that the world is pushing at us, that advertisers are pushing at us, that our own sinful nature is pushing at us. And to say, no, I'm not going to settle for that anymore. And to begin serving in the same way that Jesus did because there we will find true greatness. That's what I want to pray for all of us today. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you create in us an ambition that is so overwhelming and so strong that we can't ignore it. Father, today I'm not asking that you'd remove our other ambitions to be great parents and productive at work and to be uh, helpful in the community and and, uh, to to be well-rounded. God, keep those ambitions there. They're all good things. But Father, today I, I pray that you begin to fuel in us an ambition that's even greater for true greatness the way that Jesus defines it, not the way the world defines it. That that ambition would become so strong in us, so compelling in us, that we would seek to live that out. Above all of our other lesser ambitions. Father, I realize that some of us, it's just the wrong definition of greatness that we're pursuing, and I pray that you'd help us with that. And, and I, I do believe that there are a number of us who are just afraid, we're, we're fearful. And so, Father, I, I pray that as we talk about all this scary stuff of laying down your life to serve others and suffering and doing whatever it takes to rescue people. I pray that you'd make us brave, that you'd give us the courage to pursue a true kind of greatness, not a cheap kind of greatness that is fleeting, but that you'd make us brave to step out in faith and to pursue a kind of greatness that will both be satisfying for us, that is real and legitimate and powerful, but that will also make your name great. I pray that you'd give that to us in the name of Jesus.